0: This is the New England Journal of Medicine COVID-19 update for April 8th, 2020. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the Journal, and I'm talking with Eric Rubin, Editor-in-Chief, and Lindsey Baden, Deputy Editor. Eric and Lindsey, we've talked in past weeks a good deal about the tools that are available for controlling the epidemic and for treating disease, and both of you have been using those tools as you're seeing patients. But what could we learn over the next several weeks that could make a new impact? Of course, we're hopeful that there'll be an effective vaccine, but we know that that may take a good deal of time. Is there anything we can learn before that step of a vaccine being widely available?
1: I think that we can start with learning something about vaccination, because I think we'll get some idea if some of the current vaccines at least work in animals. The beauty of animal testing is that you can do challenge studies. You can challenge with virus and test whether or not the amount of antibody that you measure is actually effective. So I think that early efficacy testing should be available. Now, it won't necessarily translate into efficacy in humans. But having said that, the big issue with vaccines is likely to be proving that they're safe rather than that they're efficacious, starting with small and then progressively larger human trials. There doesn't appear to be any substitute. I think
2: that, Eric, the issue of vaccines and inducing immunity and how that can help us a year from now, but also can potentially help us with developing potential treatments which are antibody-based, whether it's from a recovering individual or through monoclonal techniques. But what has struck me being on service and caring for many patients with COVID illness, some of whom have quite severe illness, Steve, I think there are at least three or four things that have struck me. One is... Our whole healthcare system is now focused on patients who have COVID respiratory infection and respiratory failure. And it makes me worried a bit about all the other illnesses that we're not paying attention to as a healthcare system, in part because of the social distancing, um, in part just the fear of all of us and of our patients of coming to healthcare centers. Number two that has struck me is our understanding of when patients are no longer infectious and no longer shedding virus and at risk for transmission or for recrudescent illness. And this has come up in part in some of our cancer patients who are receiving cycles of chemotherapy and develop this illness and recover. And the question of when can they get their next round of treatment? The answers to these questions are unknown, but are very important as we manage the illness across the spectrum of disease that we care for. And then, as to the issue of serology and whether the serology is from vaccine induced or just understanding who is now immune, whether from asymptomatic or from clinical disease, and then understanding the implications of that in future care, either in protection of the healthcare staff, but also in our patients as they may need further care. So I think there are a lot of challenges in how we deliver care that COVID-19 is stressing and that we need to develop some answers and processes so that we can better take care of our patients in TOTU.
1: Lindsay, let me get to one of the points that you were making about other illnesses in this age of COVID-19. It's clear that people aren't going to the hospital. They're not going to the hospital with acute problems and they're not going to be cared for for their chronic issues. And this is going to come back to hurt us as individuals and as a healthcare system, undoubtedly as people are not getting their hypertension treated or their diabetes managed appropriately. There are some minor benefits. For example, social distancing has meant that the flu season, which would ordinarily have extended for a bit, dropped off the face of the earth because people just aren't running into each other. So there's less transmission of other infectious diseases in concert with the apparently decreased transmission of COVID-19 as these social distancing measures have set in. But I think there is going to be a price to pay in terms of management of chronic illnesses and avoidance of care for even more acute things such as MIs. I
2: agree, Eric. You know, As Steve said, what has struck us and what has struck me, it's the relative paucity of activity in the general medical clinics and the activity on the general medical wards associated with all of the conditions we routinely manage for completely understandable reasons. And as you say, There will be a health cost in some with this deferral of care, though it makes complete sense given what's going on currently, because we must stop transmission of this virus because its devastation
0: is too great. In that regard, what are some of the other prevention steps that we can look to see in the near future, some of the things that are going to begin to stop COVID-19? I'm thinking particularly of manufacturing and reuse of PPE and advances in serologic testing for protection.
1: Well, let me start with PPE. There have already been several changes implemented which make better use of the PPE we have. Certainly, it's clear that PPE can be reused, and there are many methods out there for re-sterilizing masks after they've been used, and that produce functional and safe protection for healthcare workers. And this is particularly the case with N95. In addition, we've heard lots of stories about how you can make N95 masks in various ways that appear to be fairly functional. In normal times, these would undergo a regulatory process to make sure that they worked well. But these days, that regulatory process certainly may be short-circuited. I have some concern about whether or not we are using effective means, but it is so important to expand the supply right now that that's probably a secondary concern. And I think there will be a lot more PPE. In addition, of course, there's been a tremendous increase in the manufacturing capacity for things like PPE, with a lot of industries that don't normally participate now turning their factories to make these things. So I think availability will increase. It doesn't help those people who don't have them right now. But I think over the course of weeks, we will see a difference.
2: I guess my view of this is similar to Eric's, but this is an Immediately solvable problem. And there needs to be strong leadership that demands that PPE is made at a massive scale by our industrial base in this country that will then solve this problem. And that is an imperative to be done immediately with incredible fervor at all levels. In addition, recycling PPE is going on at all of our institutions, including mine. I'm wearing an N95 for at least a week, if not longer. And much of the infection control is around how I put it on and how I take it off, because the exterior part of it is dirty once I've walked into a room. So there's incredible complexity that's been added to the healthcare system by our reusing PPE, which is better than the alternative. But this is a solution that is within our grasp if we really push our community to respond. And I feel very, very strongly that that must be done immediately as our frontline workers are in unnecessary danger because of this failure of us as a community.
1: I do want to move to serology because I think it could be an extremely important tool. Lindsay, I know you're involved in developing serologic tests right now. What do you think are the limitations right now to being able to deploy them?
2: I'm actually not involved in the development, but there are those in our community in Boston, at Harvard, where I'm affiliated, who are developing these tests. And I am pushing extremely hard to make them available because another way to help protect our healthcare staff is to know who's been infected and who's immune. What is tricky about that is if I've had this infection as evidenced by having an IgG or antibody response, We still don't know if I'm protected against second infection. There's no reason to believe why I wouldn't be, and I strongly think I would be, but there still needs to be data generation that supports that inference from prior understanding of coronavirus infections and how a neutralizing antibody is likely to work and be protective. But I think we need to develop the data to know that once one is infected and recovered, you're not vulnerable to secondary infection, which I think is highly likely. And then how to incorporate those data into our practice, both from an infection control, uh, healthcare workforce management, but also from a society management to know how many of our community members have been infected, and then we can properly direct community-wide control efforts.
1: So I do want to get a little into the logistics of it. because. Doing a serologic assay is pretty straightforward. Not only is it straightforward, but it's done by every clinical lab in the world or most clinical labs around here. And um, it's done by commercial labs and it can be done in high throughput. So the testing itself isn't so hard, but I do want to get into the logistics of making the test useful. Certainly, as you say, it's hard to understand the results without a lot of research. And that is the key right now. To understand what is a positive and what is a negative, what are the cutoffs that should be used that suggest protection, and then use those numbers to determine whether or not there really does appear to be protection in population based studies. So I think that there's a lot of work to be done in the near term that's going to be vital to you employing these tests.
2: I couldn't agree more, Eric. I think that the high throughput nature makes us very attractive to do it at large scale and then do the research to understand what it means. But we need the high quality data. And knowing who has been infected and who is immune and hopefully protected will potentially transform how we approach our response two, three months from now as the hopefully high quality data are generated to
1: inform practice. There's one more issue too, which is, Let's say that we had the perfect test and that we could predict whether individuals were protected or not. That would be an incredibly useful tool to help restart the economy if there were a sufficient number of people protected out there, people who had been previously infected and no longer were at risk of disease. But the logistics of deploying that are substantial. Who do you test? How many tests do you run? That sort of thing is going to be difficult.
2: Although a serology test, as you know, is a lot easier than a test to directly detect the virus in that if I have COVID-19 right now, one needs to do a nasal swab or some type of sample acquisition to see if it's present. For a serology test, you can draw my blood and that tells you what has gone on previously or at least previously beyond two to three weeks ago, depending on the nature of the assay. And so that it is massive logistics to do a zero survey of a community, but there are aspects of it that are less burdensome and have less infection control complexity
0: than direct viral assays to see if you're currently shedding virus. What's the state of therapeutic possibilities? What's on the near-term horizon for treatment of COVID-19?
1: Well, I think this is an area where we will be learning things in the short term. We will get some idea about the efficacy of drugs. And in fact, in the not too long term, we'll have good randomized controlled trial data for some of the drugs that are being tested right now. They could make a big difference. But of course, remember that RCTs have their limitations. Although they are very convincing, they certainly can persuade us that they're a good tool to use. They're limited in how those tools can get applied. They really tell us about a specific situation. And we will have to do more learning to understand where we can deploy them, what the timing of their use is, and what are the appropriate patient populations in which they can be used. Nevertheless, having some reliable data could make a very big difference.
2: I mean, I think it is quite remarkable that in the 12 weeks since this virus has emerged, and the four to six weeks it's been in the United States, the amount of global research and domestic research which has been undertaken in a high-quality RCT format is terrific in my view. Many of the studies, there'll be aspects that could be done better, but the fact that high-quality RCTs are being done targeting key populations is so important. One can look at clinicaltrials.gov and other registries to be able to see the number of studies that are ongoing Sadly, the case count is so high that these studies are able to be done quickly. Hopefully, the results from these studies will inform us on what we can do immediately or in the near term that can have a benefit to our patients. So it's a mixed bag of frustration that we have so much illness, and from my view, being very impressed with how the community has rallied to try and define the treatments using our best techniques, being the randomized
0: controlled trial. What about the concept of treatment as prevention?
1: That's a very good question, Steve. I think that there are two scenarios that we think about with treatment as prevention. One is treating patients who are infected, particularly those people who are mildly symptomatic or have no symptoms at all, to prevent transmission of the virus. A very good antiviral might stop shedding of the virus and then prevent transmission to susceptible people in the population. So, for example, we could be treating individuals and send them back to their households without fear or with less fear of everyone else becoming infected. The other possibility is prophylaxis, that we take the rest of the household and treat them with a drug to prevent them from ever getting infected from that individual who was shedding the virus. There are different sorts of limitations for both of those for a drug that treated mildly symptomatic or asymptomatic patient there may be less trouble because there's a lot of benefit to that patient as well if that drug prevents progression of disease. But in the case of prophylaxis, we would have to know that that drug is safe in very large populations before we would want to use it in healthy people.
2: Treatment as prevention, I think, has been established for diseases like HIV. And I think we can learn a lot from those data because it was highly effective. And the study published by Mike Cohen et al., uh, sponsored by the NIH, really established this principle for HIV, which is analogous but different. And that's a more chronic infection with transmission over a long period of time. However, the principle I think is applicable. And as Eric, uh, you suggest, If those who are infected are able to have their disease turned off or their viral shedding reduced, then that has the potential to be an important public health tool to prevent further transmission. And I think we can learn from our management of other viral diseases like HIV, even though there are important differences in the biology there, I think the
1: principle and the concepts have great analogy. That's not to suggest that drugs would be a substitute for vaccines vaccination is still going to be the key strategy in controlling this outbreak if and when we have an effective vaccine.
2: And I also think treatment as prophylaxis or really prophylaxis which really is in treatment, I think is a more complicated concept to deploy. I think there's strong scientific rationale, but take me for example, I'm at risk for the next month or two while I'm on service caring for patients. Do I get prophylaxis the whole time? Or during exposure. So there are questions there that have to be thought about, but it is a potential tool that the community needs to figure out where it fits in once we have data establishing the principles.
0: What's life like at the hospital these days? What's happening with patients? Lindsay, you talked about wearing one N95 mask for an entire week. What's going on? I think that. I have never been more inspired by
2: the dedication and commitment of my colleagues. There are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of healthcare workers who come to my institution daily and are right in harm's way, just as all the first responders and other people across the community responding to this outbreak and caring for each other. And that has been tremendously inspiring. I think there is a frustration with the community response to give us the equipment we need and to help us really protect ourselves. I think there is a great response and things are improving, but there are many parts of the country, certain cities, certain health centers that really have even greater limitations on their PPE. And I think we have to really respond to that because if we don't protect each other and our healthcare workers, we will put ourselves in even greater danger to responding to this. But the esprit and the commitment of the healthcare workers is phenomenal. And the patients, albeit are sick, are also incredibly appreciative and understanding of the complexity of this illness. So in that sense, the community response has been nothing short of inspirational, but we have to
1: do so much more to get it right. I'd add that it's a very surreal time at the hospital. You can't not know at all moments how unusual the situation is. First off, you can only walk in through a couple of entrances because for the most part, visitors are not allowed in the hospital and there's security. As you enter the hospital, they hand you a mask, which you have to put on and wear for the rest of the day so that everyone is masked. The hallways are relatively empty The rooms are quiet. Most double rooms are now being used as single rooms to try to prevent transmission of disease. And entire floors that have been dedicated to cardiology patients have been converted to infectious disease floors only for COVID-19 patients. So it hits you immediately and continuously while you're in there. What an odd time we are in right now.
2: And along those lines, because I think, Eric, you capture such an important aspect of the time we're in, there's also an eerie anticipation of the surge and our ventilator capacity and how we're going to care for the seriously ill with an unpredictable volume on our doorstep over the next days to weeks. And there has been tremendous work across Boston, where we are, to plan for this with the hospitals working together, and the city working together with contingency plans. Analogous to what we've seen a bit on the news and through other channels in New York City. And I think that all jurisdictions and healthcare networks and centers across the country should be doing this type of planning. Because as this virus enters the different cities, there will be tremendous illness and the healthcare institutions have to be prepared. And it's unpredictable. My hope is it doesn't affect any other city. However, as we watch New Orleans, Detroit, and several other uh, communities, once this gets into a city, it spreads like a respiratory virus, which is what I think this is. And one needs to be prepared for the demands on the healthcare system. But it's a very eerie feeling with us planning, where we are going to put the ventilators, transitioning operating rooms into intensive care units, figuring out proper patient flow, infection control, and supportive care but it does engender a very strong sense of community and teamwork among the healthcare
1: workers, but it is very eerie and ominous. Thank you, Lindsay. Thank you, Eric.